Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Midnight Cowboy starring Dustin Hoffman and John Voight. Based on Midnight Cowboy by James Leo Hurley. Screenplay by Waldo Salt and directed by John Schlesinger. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time for week three of our Western Four Ways cast. And now, doing things a bit different this week, looking at the urban Western or maybe a, a kind of a postmodern Western. Let's take our cowboy. Let's remove him from the Old West. Let's place him in New York City. Oh, yeah, but let's also make him a male prostitute as well. Mm-hmm. How's that sound? Sounds good. Excellent. We're talking. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) What could go wrong in this story? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, From 1969, uh, I almost said Urban Cowboy, Midnight Cowboy. Uh, This is going to be a a great discussion. I think, as we kind of alluded to last week, the only X rated film to win Best Picture, maybe even be nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. Uh, We can talk a little bit about that and kind of the discrepancy of the ratings because it's X then soft-ish R now, maybe middle-of-the-road R, R film right now. It's mainly probably language and subject matter yeah, versus what they show in the film. But back then, I mean, coming out of the Hays Code, there was really nothing they could put a label on this film, right? Right. So Interesting how they got to the X rating, too. I've got a story about that that sweet. I'll fill you in on. So, um, yeah. Can't wait to hear it. So we're going to open up. We're just trying to polish off and, and bottle kill a few ones we've been uh dancing around for the last uh few episodes so going back to the pin hook uh i like that this horse's name is bourbon heist uh this is a 98 proof uh bourbon we kind of tend to like them when they're under 100 yeah once we go into 100 105 like it starts to get a little tricky and those rare ones that i think we've done a few 120s i can't i mean and people claim that they're so good but like i just taste alcohol maybe if you we might want to try this next time we bust out like a 120 proof couple drips of water or maybe like a rock in there yeah a cube of ice and just let it set for a minute because mm-hmm. um, there's probably some good flavors that we're missing but the alcohol is so strong it sort of burns everything else off yeah we almost have to take that to the lab and kind of uh, tamper it down a bit a bit yeah yeah that sounds good so to you to you cheers cheers Good stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, this is going to be a jam-packed episode, so let's go ahead and get this show started with our flight question. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words saying. Only the echoes of my mind. People stopping staring. I can't see their faces. Only the shadows of their eyes. I'm going well. I can't think of a more uplifting and optimistic yet pessimistic song at the same time. Yeah. Like it gives me feelings of, especially its use in the film of Joe leaving Texas. Mm-hmm. Opportunity. I'm going to make something for myself. Kind of like the person going to Hollywood to be a star, starlet. But the, the p- tinges of sadness in that song too, of like, yeah, it's gonna be hard. You might not make it either. Right. Uh, yeah, it kind of kind of break breaks me a little bit that that song. It's, yeah. it's one of the best moments of the film. 
Uh, I thought about going a few different ways with this week's flight question, all kind of centered around the Academy Awards and maybe best picture films that don't hold up, best uh, things that won that or that should didn't deserve to win. But I want to go more with, uh, so this is 1969's best picture winner. We'll talk a little bit about the other accolades of the film. But, you know, the Oscars is just such a crapshoot, right? Mm-hmm. It's popularity contest. It's this. But I really feel like they got into something here in this era. They were really wanting to highlight this particular set of films that we really like, whether it's The Graduate, this, French Connection. Hollywood mm-hmm. was leaning into more of the edge, right? New Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh So my question to you is three films, whether they were nominated or not nominated, that deserve to win Best Picture, be a part of that conversation, but failed to at the end of the day. I went with this in the way that they were nominated Mm -hmm. and then the best Best Picture losers. Okay. And part of my decision in this also came down to what won that year. Mm -hmm. So there's an edge of elitism in this. I kind of did the same thing too. I think all mine are also nominated. Let's do threes. Let's do threes. All right. I'm going to go all the way back to 1937. The winner that year is Life of Emile Zola. Ever heard of it? I have. Never seen it. Ever going to see it? Probably, maybe. For the completionist of me, but it, it sounds boring. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Awful Truth loses. Oh, brutal. To Emile Zola. What I think is unique about that is that's at the height of that slapsticky screwball comedy mm-hmm. that was so popular. Yeah. And then you cast obviously Cary Grant mm-hmm. and it just doesn't get it across the finish line. Um, who's in that other movie? I don't know. <laughs> I was going to do some research on it. It just sounds boring. Yeah. And we could be dead wrong. We're we probably, be. we're probably not. <laughs> yeah. That's a good guess. It's just, um, yeah, it's, it's tough, man. Okay. Okay, so there's my number three. That's a good choice. Number three for me, I am going to 1973, the winner that year. A uh, pretty good movie, I think. Maybe we'll cover it one of these days, The Sting. Yeah. But I think a better film that came out that year that should have won, The Exorcist. Yeah. Too edgy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, are we going to give it to this anti-Catholic, uh, religious, you know, pariah that's already controversial for its own right. More on that coming soon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't think the, the world wasn't ready for that, right? It, the Oscars are still a prestigious award, and giving it to The Exorcist seems a bit out of line, even though it deserves it. Yeah, yeah no argument here. Mm-hmm. Um, you said Sting's a good film, but... Uh, I've seen The Sting maybe twice, maybe three times in my life. I've seen The Exorcist like 20-plus times. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with it, how far you're willing to go rewatch some of these things. Yeah. Yep. Did Awful Truth win anything? Mm, I think Leo McCary might have won for Best Director. Okay. But I know Irene Dunn, I know she was nominated. I think she's never been nominated like five times, but yeah. she didn't win either. Brutal. Yeah. Did she ever get like an honorary or? Um, no. Even more brutal. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. No justice. No justice. What's your number two? My number two, going to jump ahead about 15 years to 1951. Okay. The winner that year is An American in Paris. Yeah. You know what it beat for me? A Place in the Sun. Mm. Let's just stop the show right now. Mm-hmm. There's no way. Again, maybe the edginess has a lot to do with that. It's 1951, so we really don't want murdering baby dads, <laughs> yeah. um, possibly. But Montgomery Clift, Shelley Winters, Elizabeth Taylor. We'll do that movie one day. Oh, man, I cannot wait. It's Master George Stevens, right? Yeah, masterpiece. Mm-hmm. 
based on a book called An American Tragedy, and boy is it, mm-hmm. about the ambitious climb up the ladder of success and what happens along the way if you meet the wrong gal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, didn't win, and An American Paris did. Aye. Yeah, he's right. There's there's a few musicals of that era that I do like, like Singing in the Rain, I think is one. pretty good. I'll give you that one. But not that. Uh, I know, I know. Like, that's, it's funny, because that kind of film is going to play into a lot of the discussion about this film today and why that movie got made. Okay. So we'll talk about like that glossy, high-beamed, pretty cinematic experience versus down-to-earth gritty. Yeah. I like down-to-earth gritty. Boy, don't we. All right, number two for you. Number two for me, we're going to go to the year 1939. The Best Picture winner that year was Gone with the Wind, but... You know, Gone with the Wind is what it is. I've only seen it once. It took me four days to watch it. Uh, you know, it's the the what it's about and everything maybe hasn't aged the best, but I think there's a film unanimously that from 39 that is just required film viewing. I got to go with The Wizard of Oz, man. Yeah. Uh, the longevity of that film, I think the Technicolor aspect, the mastery of the story. I mean, it's the hero's journey, right? Mm-hmm. It's another version of Campbell's tale. The, the songs, the production design. You can't tell me there's a film. The uh, Monkeys uh, and the Witch are terrifying. Yeah, still. Mm-hmm. Uh, a film from 1939 that you're able to get like the youth of today to still sit down and like get engaged with. And that's a miracle. Yeah. So I got to give it to that. It's just, it's just timeless. I think it's a better movie than Gone with the Wind too. I mean, when I finally did finish Gone with the Wind one day, I was just like, yeah, it was good. But like, man, like the journey to get here was laborious. <laughs> I couldn't argue with anything you said. You're right. Excellent. It's a better film. The 1939 was the powder cake year, though, a film, right? Yes, it There's was. just those two and a bajillion other things. Yeah, look it up. The list is astounding, mm-hmm. especially when you think about what the best winners have been for the better part of the last decade for us. Mm-hmm. And, well, we could get into that conversation. That's, <laughs> we, a, that's a shot, I think. Yeah, sure. Number one. Oh, you know where I'm going with this, I bet. I think so. 1995. Mm-hmm. The winner that year is Forrest fucking Gump. <laughs> <laughs> and there are four, arguably four, three other amazing pieces of cinema that year. Mm-hmm. I'll give you the also rans and give you what is the should have won. Yeah. Quiz show. Never seen it. It's amazing. Is it? Is that yeah. Redford, right? Yeah. Pulp Fiction, yeah, and Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. It's the Shawshank Redemption. Either that or Pulp. Uh, They're both, yeah. I mean, depending on if how, you, how you feel that day or whatnot. But I tend to like Shawshank more. But Pulp is also amazing. I think that's still Tarantino's best mm-hmm. film to date. Yeah. Um, but no, it ends up being anecdotally cute. Forrest Gump. Yeah, too cute, right? Mm-hmm. It's just that is the best picture template in a nutshell. Yep. Versus something a little more cerebral or completely experimental. And Forrest Gump, like as much as I'm saying effing Forrest Gump, that's that's not a terrible film either. It's oh, really, yeah. I mean that's if that's on, that's a nice film. It's yeah. well made. I have a good time watching Forrest. Sure. Gump. Yeah. It's just you're up against such heavyweights. A lot of people make the same argument with. Well, I don't want to say anything because it might take years away, but. Yeah. Um, Network and Rocky, there's a lot of argument to be had in that with that same year. Sure. But I just think this year, man, talk about a miss. I just think the longevity of the two films that didn't win, there's more conversation about that than really Forrest Gump, right? Well, even the fourth film in there, Four Weddings and a Funeral, is a nice film. Yeah, sure. That's a pretty good slate. Yeah. 94, 94, 95? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. All right, number one. Number one for me, I'm going to the year 2001. 
the best pitcher winner that year was a beautiful mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say, uh, just, mm, it's just, yeah. I know okay. where you're, I know where you're going. With okay. This. Uh, it should have gone to, and I'm glad there, there was some justice at the end of the road for this. I got to go Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. Duh. It's, I think it's the best film in that series. Um, we got to cover those one of these days too. Mm-hmm. In I don't know, a six episode format. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> There's be- so much content, mm-hmm. but it like, losing into a beautiful mind. It just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. It's the starter of a trilogy that defined the two thousands masterfully made. And there's just nothing there for me. And, Ron Howard's <laughs> beautiful mind. Yeah. I think uh, Gosford Park was also that year. Moulin Rouge. Um, I don't think any of those films hold a candle to fellowship. No uh, way. I don't think at all. In any realm of filmmaking category. Yeah, that's a robbery for sure. Yeah. Again, that's not a bad film. That's made well, and Jennifer Connelly and Russell Crowe are really good together in it. But you're talking about, arguably, yeah, what might be the greatest epic science fiction and i'm including in totality all of the star wars stuff as well lord of the rings is my star wars ever been made now i'm not including the hobbit prequel crap in there because that's trash (laughs) yeah but those three films three or four yeah three films three and the 11 hours that it takes to watch them just to see something through that is that arduous and that's the beginning so you can set it up to get to the end Man, Jesse. Can I tell you a funny story about that year's Oscars? Sure. I, that was like the first year because it was a movie I saw that got like, I think it had 11 nominations, like mm-hmm. second most ever. And it was like the first year I really got into the ceremony. So I had my dad, he went and got me like some snacks from the grocery store. I locked his keys in the car. Oh. It was a whole production, but I'm sitting there for the Oscars with my snack packs, uh, just watching these categories and the pump and circumstance of it all. And when they get to best supporting actor, which I was positive was going to go to Ian McKellen as Gandalf went to Jim Broadbent for a film called, uh, Iris. I about threw all the food on the floor and almost turned the TV off. I was like, what an injustice. Mm-hmm. And I knew then I was like, it's not looking good for this film. The outlook isn't good. Mm-hmm. And they won a lot of technical score, visual effects, a lot of the, that type of stuff, but it lost in all the major categories. They paid it off at the end, right? Oh, yeah. They swept the third one. Yeah. 11 for 11. So I guess they got there. They could have swept three years in a row, damn yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. We'll have to do one of these years. We'll have to look at the list and pick three best picture winners that do still hold up and three that absolutely do not. And I'll throw Crash right at the very tippy top of that list. <laughs> Michael Clayton versus There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Isn't that the same year? Uh, yeah, that one. And I think there were uh, No Country for Old Men is that same year too. Man. Mm-hmm. The King's Speech versus Inception in the Social Network. Get out of town, man. Get out of town, man. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's dive right into our review breakdown of Midnight Cowboy. Well, bye. Bye. What are you going to do back east? A lot of rich women back there, Ralph. Begging for it. Paying for it, too. Yeah? Yeah, hell yeah. And the men, they're mostly tutti-frutties. Oh, I bet you're some mess back there. So I'm going to cash in on some of that, right? I don't know. I don't know nothing about it. Hell, what do I got to stay around here for? I got places to go, right? Okay, man, let's see how long it takes us to get out of the first 15 minutes of the movie because, my God, this thing is just loaded right from the get-go. This is a cask all about Westerns. 
And what does it say about a film that starts with an abandoned, derelict drive-in theater playing sounds of a Western on a blank screen? Mm-hmm. As that little kid rides that old school, like, kind of teeter-totter that's a cowboy. Mm-hmm. It's the death of the Western, right? It, or, yes, and the fish out of water as well. Yeah. And he's the fish out of water. Yeah, it's the death of the Western. Um. Yeah, cowboys shooting cowboys and Indians, and we kind of pull back from that, and it's not glamorous at all. And we, mm-hmm. we we then introduce ourselves to Joe Book, and I just thought that was like, wow, if you wanted to visually show the death of the modern Western, what was done by John Ford and Wayne and all those years before, that's the way to do it. And But what better way to do it yeah. than to take the hockneyed outfit that they put Joe Buck in yeah. and send him off to the middle of mega New York City, mm-hmm. He looks like a blister mm-hmm. of ridiculousness. Yeah. Mostly the entirety of this film. Uh, but when you get that great shot of see, you see him walking amongst the crowd of New Yorkers with his stupid hat on and chewing his dentine gum. Mm-hmm. Man, there is just no question that not only is the West dead, but this guy's chances are on life support right from the word go. How tall is John Voight? Uh, it's either he's tall or Dustin Hoffman's very short or he's got some lifts in those boots because when they're together, he towers over him. He towers over everybody in this film. Dustin Hoffman is really short. Is he? I'm not sure. Yeah, John Voight might be like six-ish. Okay. Um, I know Leah Schreiber is fairly tall. Mm-hmm. And in Ray Donovan, he's similar in stature. Okay. Not quite, but so I'm going to just, and I don't. I could be wrong. It could be 5'10 because Dustin Hoffman's like 4'6". So you take that. How he's t- not really four six, but he's tiny. Yeah, four six, <laughs> six. five two three maybe. Trying to get on the big rides at Disneyland. Yeah, oh, he, almost, he almost doesn't meet height requirement for Indiana Jones in the Temple <laughs> of the Forbidden Eye. Uh, You're mean. So, yeah. So so couple that his stature mm-hmm. with what he's dressed and his cowskin luggage. Yeah. Oh my God. He looks like a hack. <clears throat> yeah. The wannabe cowboy, right? Yeah. I don't know if he would, you don't get the impression that he ever was a ranch hand or a sheriff or anything. This is just his look. Well, yeah, he's a dishwasher. Yeah. So I don't think he was any of those. He just thinks that this is going to play amongst the rich elite ladies that he's going to bed one after the other. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the whole point is little do we know. Yeah. And little does he know. Yeah. But we know right away if the movie wasn't a signal enough that the West is dead, then watching him show up to the east yeah. in this garish western attire is also just about dead. Yeah. And he's also dumb as rocks, too. Dumb as rocks. Yeah. <laughs> Salt lick dumb. Yeah, I forgot about that scene when he's he's writing on those postcards, and I was trying to kind of look at what he was writing there, and it was Here like I am. almost illegible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I almost wonder if he wrote that with his non-dominant hand oh, to okay. make it seem, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, and then later when he's playing boggle with mrs what's her name you can't even money <laughs> mrs money poor joe buck uh so this is john voight's first appearance in film really this is it his debut yep it's a hell of a debut you know who else was in contention for this role no oh. harrison ford interesting i could see that interesting career path that might have taken him on though yeah um he obviously doesn't get it but uh yeah john Boyd did Interesting. And although nominated, 
he doesn't win for this. John Boyd is going to bring one home in another fairly controversial film and what should have and maybe didn't win, which like is Coming Home. Coming Home, yeah. Uh, John Boyd's had a really interesting career. Yeah. Through the 70s, per- personally, he's pretty good. <laughs> with his daughter on the screen. like, Did you notice that too? There's moments in that that he looks exactly yeah. like Angelina Jolie. Mm-hmm. The eyes. Man, the eyes. They're the same. Yeah. Uh, that uh, No, he has, because two years after this is Deliverance. Yep. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah, Coming Home... I get John Voight's kind of career path a little confused with um, uh, not Deliverance. Oh gosh, what's his name? Christopher Walken. A I was going to say Deer Hunter, Christopher yeah. Walken. I think I get it's because I get Coming Home and Deer Hunter confused sometimes. Mm-hmm. This is a great role for for him, uh, Joe Buck. What a good name, right? Just simple. You get it. We have we talked about the stature, his costuming. Let's talk a little bit about his backstory or what's at least alluded to us here as he's getting on the bus. One anecdote, though, and I paused it just because doing this podcast now, Matt, like I just like I'm like on hyper alert for things. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you feel the same way, but like things maybe jump out at you and you're like, wow, I never noticed that before, but I got to bring it up now. Right. When he gets on the bus and they're driving down the road and they pass this Frank's hamburger hut there's a sign on the the side of the thing that says world's largest hot dog oh wow alluding to buck right yep there's a reason he's going to go be this hustler right and he's working with some special material yep can't be accidental right Mm -hmm. yeah so i i saw that and i was like wow i have to bring that up (laughs) john void is not a dumb man Mm mm-hmm And I guess we could have the same conversation with Stallone in regards to Rocky. Sure. But I think one of the, for that matter, we could probably do um, Marty. What's that? Um, Oh, Borgnine. Borgnine, thank you. Yep. How difficult it is to play dumb. Mm -hmm. Because just the simple process of remembering those lines and getting into that character which is a fairly cerebral activity, do we agree? Mm-hmm. Has got to be twice as hard because you're cerebrally dumbing down the material and then submitting it to memory. It's almost relearning things in a way that regress your own ability to retain the material. And I think for all of the times that Hollywood celebrates the actor that goes through a crazy body metamorphosis and loses 75 pounds, see Christian Bale in The Fighter mm-hmm. or um, Tom Hanks in uh, Castaway or um, oh, I don't, Philadelphia Story. Tom Hanks in Philadelphia Story there too. Um, I don't know if they get enough credit for this. I don't think so. Even one of his lines here when he's on the, on the bus was like, I'm going to get car sick on boats. It's like an oxymoron, right? Right. <laughs> it's just <laughs> right. Uh, that's the charm of him, right? I think I think Joe Buck Joe Buck is a fairly likable character. Uh, I think mm-hmm. you know how nice he is to the people on the bus. I don't think he's ever really rude, other than like when he's trying to stand up for himself and get payment for the services rendered. Uh, I think there's some good intentions with him, and especially towards the end when he becomes the caretaker of Ratso Rizzo. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, uh, that's something I, th- I saw in this viewing was he, he's kind of a good guy, even though he's kind of got this maybe possibly checkered past. That's interesting you bring that up because I went back and forth on that. Okay. I do think he's an anti-hero, mm-hmm. uh, not just because of the profession that he chooses, which is cut from the morals of social fibers, right? Yeah. 
the ending of this movie, and I don't mean the bus ending. I mean what what he does that allows him and Ratso to get on the bus together. Yeah. I think there's an insinuation there mm-hmm. that he kills that guy. Yeah. I get why he's doing it. Mm-hmm. And I get that that guy, to a certain extent, the way he's moaning in a very birds-like fashion, seems to be finding some euphoria and getting beat the beat to hell. I don't know, Jesse. Like, uh, he's a murderer. I kind of. I, I thought it was desperation. He's a likable murderer. Yeah, sure. I guess. I thought it was desperation. Sure. I mean, they're literally at their wits' ends at that point. Mm-hmm. So desperate for any type of cash, and again, when you're not getting paid for what you're offering. I mean, that's when things get just a little heated. What, what do you make of his, his backstory here? Um, dropped off on the stoops at grandma's place. Uh, those scenes of him in bed with his grandma and his grandpa, very troubling, uh, possible molestation yeah. involved. And then you have the stuff with like his girlfriend and, uh, there's something that happens when he's a kid and grandma's standing at the foot of his bed and his legs are spread and she's ready to probe away. Yeah. Well, just the way she cradles him in bed. And then the first time we see her actually is he's given her a massage and yeah. then he starts like kissing him on the face. It's, it's really icky. Yes. So something damaged him early on that kind of guided him towards this path. Uh, and then, yeah, whether that was his first sexual encounter with this girlfriend that really loved him that maybe possibly turned into another uh, sodomy scene for him and then a gangbang possible rape of his girlfriend. Yeah. Yes. I don't know what's going on there, but it's crazy. No, it is. It's for sure the gang rape of he and his girlfriend. Mm. Uh, this time through, a couple things really resonated to me and with the Joe Buck character. And one is the... Um, morality of him which is certainly in play and the second one is i think he's crazy sure and the reason i would say that is these wild hallucinogenic states that he goes through in the film when posed with conflict or stress exactly yeah despite the fact that he's you know kind of folksy friendly and a simple person and seems to be at least earnestly trying to make a living and friendly to a verbal Kent like displaced, mm-hmm. you know, reject of society. I don't think Joe Buck is mentally sound. And I, I can't blame him. If, if what you said about grandma and grandpa is true, which yeah. it is, and then not to mention the religious element that comes into that on oh, top his of baptism. It. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I did notice him sitting on the stoops in like a soldier's uniform mm. in one scene. Mm. So there could be some PTSD going on here too. I'm with you. Not of uh, a very fragile human being here. Okay. So I can see why he would snap in some of these scenes later in the film with, with Bob Balaban in the, in the in the movie theater bathroom, and then with that guy at the at the end of the film. Yeah. But yeah, his hallucin. You know what would normally be a drug induced hallucination on film is just his dreams, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very troubled. Very troubled young man. So his backstory is one that's it's loaded in. Um, shown in a really interesting way. I was There's, just going to ask, do you like how they do it? I love it? it. Yeah. This is the height of this new Hollywood era that you and I love so much. So good. The yeah. auteur depiction of that on the screen. Mm-hmm. Off mic, we spoke about this. Yeah. What I appreciate about this film is sometimes what can be oppressive with maybe like a David Lynch or Jonathan Waters. Yeah. 
Um, Jonathan Waters. <laughs> formally address him. Those go a little bit beyond even uh, Mr. My Own Private Idaho Guy. Um, Gus Van Zandt. Thank you, Gus Van Zandt, psycho. <laughs> the movie is 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 odd. It's alternative. It's auteur. It's out of the flowing, comfortable, pretty style that Hollywood was used to making films. That's why we like this era. Yeah. Grainy, gritty, backstory, out of sequence, hallucinogenic, somewhat psychedelic. And in some strange manner, mm-hmm. it all makes for a really pleasant viewing experience in a gritty, tough film. Well, it became the era, too, of post-Haze Code. It truly became the era of show, don't tell, right? Yeah. We were limited by what we could show on the screen with fireplaces and uh, train tunnels. And now we can actually show it. And we can be creative in the ways we show it. And that's what I appreciate about Schlesinger and how he does these flashbacks. Is, is Joe on a bus, like, yeah. almost having these regrets? Maybe I shouldn't be leaving. And then him, like, you know what? I do need to leave this life behind because this is what it is. And the audience gets to see it. And they get to piece it together themselves. And I like that. I like the you trying to play detective for his damaged psyche. You couldn't do those backstory scenes in the 50s, just 10 years prior, right? No, you couldn't. Yeah. And to add to your fuel to your fire about Joe's mental capabilities, when he meets the kids on the bus and they're playing sort of peekaboo, mm-hmm. I really think that the thing the kid is playing peekaboo behind is a comic book. And it's the same comic book that Joe has later in the film that Ratso makes him put down when he tries to feed him. Mm-hmm. How'd he get that comic book? Yeah. Did he swipe it from the kid? Could have. So as much as that scene is, oh, look, he's playing cutesy with this kid and they're playing peekaboo and he's this you know, going to be hardworking male prostitute cowboy who's the hooker with the heart of gold. Yeah. He has that kid's comic book, and there's this constant river that I really picked up on this time of, man, that fucker. He's in the gray. At best, in the gray. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we get to New York. I like the scene of when they finally, first of all, this bus ride. Mm -hmm. Texas to NYC. No, thank you. I'd be puking my guts out that whole trip. Yeah, (laughs) That sounds awful. Yeah. Uh, Almost very Ellis Island-like. They're not coming on boats to the land of opportunity. Uh, he's on a bus with all these other stinky patrons. He's sitting next to a nun, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he sees, you know, the skyscrapers, right? I thought that was an interesting way to enter the city. It was. It reminded me of Godfather 2 and Antonio Andolini sees the statue for the first time. Yeah. What new life am I going to make for myself? Much the same question for Joe. Now I'm here. Let's, let's see. Let's make it happen. And, right, sticking out like a sore thumb in the... Uh, in the streets of New York, right? Now, I've been... Maybe you have an answer for me. Maybe you don't. I had the sneaking suspicion that maybe this production did some stuff illegally filming on the streets of New York in this film. Maybe didn't have the appropriate permits. Maybe more of like a guerrilla-style filmmaking. Would you kind of get that vibe at all? Yeah, because here's a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. Don't hit me. Come on these gals that want to buy it, most of them are old and dignified. Social registered types, you know what I mean? They can't be trotting down a Times Square to pick out the merchandise. They gotta have some kind of uh, middleman. And that's where old Daniel comes in, you know what I mean? 
Completely ad-libbed. Incredible. It's and you can tell too. I think I had heard that before. Uh and I in the background, if you watch the extras, I, I don't think they're extras. I think those are just real people. I think yeah. <laughs> I do too. Stunned about what almost just happened and this street confrontation. Kudos to Dustin Hoffman for not breaking character yeah. and just going with it. Mm-hmm. Didn't ruin the scene, and as soon as it ends, he's like, yeah, that's actually pretty good for like uh, claiming like an insurance claim or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amazing. Ever the professional, uh, Mr. Hoffman, in, in some of these films. And I like the dis- distinction of trying to pinpoint who's in it for the acting and who's in it for the glam. Mm. Doing that, man, you're like, you're, you like acting, right? Yeah. You're that into your character. You're just willing to just keep going with it. Chosen specifically post Ben Braddock role in The Graduate, Schlesinger really liked him and thought he played the perfect cripple crimp, per, cripple pimp. And we've talked about a lot of actors on this show, mm-hmm. and we've seen the accolades of De Niro and Grant and Stewart and Wayne, and we could go Daniel Day Lewis. We go on and on, bail down the list with all these. Sure. We have yet to speak about his talents, and it occurred to me today mm-hmm. on the Mount Rushmore of Hall of Fame actors. Yeah. I think you could make the case mm-hmm. that he should be on there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's never on there, though. Can I bring up another actor? And this is just a revelation I've made in the last few days, mm-hmm. uh, just because he's shown up in a lot of stuff, and he's always just odd and weird and good, and mm. that's Willem Dafoe, man. Yeah. I mean, that guy's yeah. El Chameleon just as much as Gary Oldman, and I think enough people talk about him in that kind of way you were talking about, Day-Lewis and Hanks and... Morgan Freeman and some of those actors, but I'm with you with Hoffman. This he he's the best part of this film. I mean, if you take Little Big Man, The Graduate, and this, just those three films, those three films are probably two better performances than just about anybody working in Hollywood. That's actor, not a list megastar. Mm. And even megastar has a lot to do with popularity and looks and not so much talent. Sure. But those three roles and those films alone, and we could continue on Straw down. Straw Dogs, Dogs was, a, it was the fourth one I was just going to do. All the President's Men's just a few years later. Right? I mean, yeah. just it never ends. He had a good run in this time period. And I would also argue his later performances, although selective, mm-hmm. are as unique and good as these are. And I'm going to argue that with Stranger Than Fiction. I'll tell you, I love him in Meet the Fockers. Okay. <laughs> with... This incredible range as what looks like the little brother of the boy next door. Because I think when you say the boy next door, there tends to be a charming, good-looking appeal to that guy. Yeah. Where he doesn't have that. Yeah. But despite that, so he's not he's not making or breaking it on his looks. No. That's pure talent with this guy. Yeah. I mean, I heard he's a prick to work with. Yeah. Okay, so most of them are. And that has a lot to do with director and drugs and all kinds of other things too. But irregardless of that, I think it's time to, and you've done, you just did it. So mm-hmm. we, we, now we've done it really acknowledge how f- wickedly talented. Yeah. He is. I, I, Jesse, I've been a fan of film for 49 years yeah. now and I never really came to truly uh, look. I like Benjamin Braddock. Mm-hmm. It's a good performance, 
few others. Yeah. I never came to realize this guy has a rock solid career. Yeah. And one for, he's got one. What did he win for? Tootsie. Rain Man. And Tootsie. Yeah. So two maybe. Mm-hmm. God, we didn't think about I mean, we could just keep going. Like, think about those two you just added. Well, the one film that I, I he was the, the casting that didn't, he didn't get that. I'm just curious to see what that would even look like. Because it could have worked was Blade Runner as Rick Deckard. I buy it totally. Yeah. That could have been something. The, the guy has a range, a career. Hot take. Mm. This might be his best role. Uh I was just might be in complete awe of Ratso Rizzo this this time watching. Yeah. So Joe gets to New York, he finds someone on the streets like instantly. I thought that was crazy. It was just like he's just gonna like talk to these women and see if they're like taking a keen interest into his sex uh trade. And he picks up on a woman that's just like down, right? Yep. Uh, to me, that's like impossible, but like he figures it out. It's this lonely woman who also might be a prostitute herself, too. Uh, and her and her little dog. And that seems just uh, kind of nuts, too, but kind of gives him a taste, right? And when he's talking with rats, so it kind of becomes this partnership that they try to form, like, management, right? Mm-hmm. You need someone who knows the street, even the way he's talking. You need someone who's going to be able to manage your money and your clients. And it's a very yeah, pimping and, and, and a prostitute here. Uh it's a unique partnership, and it goes south right away because the guy he sends him to is this pederast priest, maybe what? weirdo. Oh my god, Carrie White's uh, the male version of Carrie White mm. or of Margaret White. I mean, oh good, good. Okay, so Mister Hustler from small town nowhere, Bynum, Texas, is going to go to New York City and show these city folk what's up because he's got um, an empowered Johnson and a cowboy look to die for, or whatever he thinks his superpowers to make this are are going to work in that span of him arriving off the bus at New York city to the bit where he meet or is born again, or almost trying to be born again with that crazy petter ass in his apartment. He's hustled at least three times with the woman that you speak about mm-hmm. who is clearly an aged older prostitute. And he ends up giving her money because he feels like he's offended her dignity by calling her beauty into question. Yeah. Then let's talk about the apartment or that place that he's living. Yes. There's a hustle on the TV box, Jesse. He's got to pay to watch TV. So what does he use? His little Shantate radio. Yep. And then number three is the Razzo Rizzo meeting to the Razzo Rizzo initial departure. Yep. Which I think now is all a setup in that bar with the players around Razzo Rizzo. They have their eyes on him from the beginning, and they sure. see Neophyte, and they're going to work him over. Yeah, clean him dry. And they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, 20 bucks. Yeah. Joe Buck tells the woman in the apartment, you don't have anything to worry about. Look at this wad of cash I have strapped to my leg. Now, when you use that, you're talking about what? Your money? or your, What are we talking about here? Mm-hmm. And he starts just giving it away like it's candy on Halloween. Mm-hmm. And by the time he's out of the first or second day. Yeah. He's cleaned out, man. Just walking the streets. It's gone like that. And he didn't get to watch the television program. So the fish out of water is in really, really deep water swimming with sharks and losing. Well, Ratso's kind of right. He doesn't have the financial sense to be able to use his money wisely on the streets. He's just giving it out. So, so loosely here to, to these people. 
And it's when he starts to get really desperate. He doesn't want to go this route. <laughs> he wanted to stay with the upper class, you know, cougars of New York City. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to have to resort, but I will if I have to. And he's come. To, he's okay with it, right? Mm-hmm. Young Bob Balaban, I mean, who would be a staple in all the Christopher Guest mockumentaries. And I know him as Russell Dalrymple on Seinfeld as the NBC executive. He just picks them up and they go to the movie theater watching some sci-fi rocket film. It gives them a handy and a blowy in the in, in the in the theater. And then we watch him get sick in the sink. Yeah. That's like weird. even that guy's troubled with like what just happened and then doesn't even have the money to pay him. And of course it's the rocket blast, right? Of course. The rocket blast imagery. Yeah. And to further your cause or your case that he's a good guy, as this Bob Balaban's character won't pay him because he doesn't have any money. He's about to steal his watch only to have some morality kick in because the guy says, what am I going to tell my mom? And that would be a disaster for me. And then he mm-hmm. says, don't keep your damn watch. And so what's happened now is in the span of maybe two or three days, he's been seduced twice. Yep. And the hustler who's going to use seduction as the means of an economic answer is having that completely used against him by two of the most, think about this, inconspicuous, least threatening targets, marks, Mm -hmm. you could possibly pick. This guy can't even figure out this mark that's a 60-year-old woman or Bob Balaban. Brother, how is he going to make it on the streets with these real hustlers? Like, when's he... He's he's buried, Jesse. He kind of needs Ratso Rizzo, and that's saying something, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Come on now. Come on, I'm a cripple. I ain't gonna hit you. Come on now. I'm gonna strangle you to death. Now, wait a minute. Only first, I'm gonna shoot you out right here now. Where's my money? Here. You put it right there, boy. All right. All right. Here. Here. That that's all I got. Here. That's it. That's all you got. What you got in your socks? Nothing. I, I swear to God, I swear on my mother's eyes. Here, nothing. Here, 64 cents. Go ahead. Come on, I want you to have it. Uh, sticky, what'd you do? Slobber on it? Here. Mm. Here, have a Sticker. cigarette. Come on. Come on. We'll talk about him teaming up with Ratso here in the Shantate that they're going to live into. Yeah. Man, this is the worst Shantate of anyone we've ever mentioned on this podcast before. <laughs> yes. But the, in, the what's indicative of Joe Buck's lack of intelligence and financial sense and desperation, I think, is completely evident uh, when he goes to that restaurant and there's a help wanted sign on the door and he goes and sits down at this table with this mother and her son and he's just pilfering crackers off the table, putting ketchup on them. Oh, gosh, that sounds disgusting, but they're free, right? He doesn't have money to pay for a meal here. That's desperation. Desperation. And then at the end of the film. But even that, he fails at. Yeah, he spills ketchup all over his pants. His one, his best suit, his best looking costume to get laid, the the seduction, the cowboy seduction outfit. So I feel bad for him. I mean, I just feel bad for his inability to wade the waters of New York City, which is already a jungle in itself. Yeah. Um, We'll talk about later at the end of the film. How rock bottom do these two characters get by the end of this film? Like, man, it's like, I don't know how much farther you can go. But Ratso, you screwed me once, and he feels kind of bad about it. So he's like, well, you you can come live with me. I got an exclusive real estate. He has his own private entrance, right? 
This place is a shithole. Condemned building. A condemned building that only he and maybe some other junkies or rats are living in. Uh, This thing is gross. And that's it. But what, what he has nice wallpaper, though. It's Florida natural orange juice. It's a uh, poster of come visit Florida. He's really trying to spruce it up with goals, right? Uh, a, a place to go to, his dream place. Mm-hmm. What do you think of this kind of cohabitation between these these two people here, just on the early onset? Well, the movie's suddenly taking a change to what might be a possible buddy movie. Mm. And... The question then with the buddy movie is what's going to bring the two forces together to build this friendship or this lasting bond and what do they accomplish buddy wise together? Now think about where we're playing in space with buddy movies. We're at a time when Redford and Newman among others are really setting a high standard for the buddy films. If you take shiny glossy Redford and Newman, can you think of anybody that's less surfboardy than John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. Oh my gosh. That's why we love it though. Yeah, these guys are a mess. And so the tropes that work for, in the although set in the 1920s, The Sting is a 1960, 70, early, somewhere 71 movie, which is 71? Yeah. Or 73. Yeah. Okay, 73. So it's still in that era, like 67 to 77 is kind of where we're talking about this new Hollywood era that may not be. Technically, but that's the area that you I and I like speak about. Sixty-seven to maybe seventy-five, because like Jaws okay. is the end of that, right? Okay, blockbuster filmmaking. So even seventy-four, like Texas Chainsaw, I think kind of fits the mold still. Um, There's some latter stragglers will show up, but okay, if we go sixty-seven to seventy-five, that's fine. Yeah, these guys aren't going to be able to do the pretty bank heist or the pretty in Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid or the pretty con job on Robert Shaw. Instead, these two rough and tumble, garish, blue collar at best Mm, mm -hmm. buddies are going to have to try to form some economic partnership and friendship through, I guess, Ratso's guile. And I use that. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, he's kind of a little bit that way. And John Voight's looks. That's it. I, again, and his penis, <laughs> they're really up against it. Really? Because uh, yeah. as much as Ratso Rizzo is, is guyly and street smart and cunning, he's kind of also not, though, because he's not physically capable of pulling up. The guy can't even walk. Yeah. If you can't walk in New York, yeah. how are you going to hustle? Yeah, no way. <laughs> right? He's struggling. And, and like his his willing and dealing is to steal things. I mean, he's stealing fruits and vegetables on the, right. the side shops. I do like the little play he does uh, to clean his clothes, Joe's clothes, which is to help this pregnant woman at the laundromat. And he's like, oh, no, here, let me get that for you. And then he sneaks the clothes in. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's that type of hustling. I mean, petty, petty, petty hustling. Yeah, Yeah. that's the way to say it. Like three card Monty would be an elevated scam compared to what these guys are running. This is run by the fruit stand on the corner and snag a tomato. Yeah. And what's happening across the street is the... 42nd street. Yeah. The city, the city workers of New York are tearing down that building across the street and they're going to come to this one next. It's a matter of time. So they're, they're limited in in what they're able to do here. So what's nice though about it though, is the Florida element. Mm -hmm. I do love Florida. Like I love it, but what it offers each of them is a brighter and specifically shown in a brighter manner. Yeah. Future. Yeah. 
so as grim and gritty and downtrodden as the movie is, and these two are in it, by including Florida and orange juice and coconut milk and all of the things that go on with bright, sunny, warm, palmy Florida, it does provide a little bit of light in this thing that keeps it from going completely black and grim. I'm not talking about me now. When's the last time you've been to confession? It's between me and my confessor. And I'll tell you another thing. Frankly, you're beginning to smell. And for a stud in New York, that's a handicap. Well, don't talk to me about clean. I ain't never seen you change your underwear once the whole time I've been here in New York. And that's pretty peculiar behavior. I don't have to do that kind of thing in public. I ain't got no need to expose myself. No, I bet you don't. I bet you ain't never even been laid. How about that? And you're going to tell me what appeals women. I know enough to know that that great big dumb cowboy crap of yours don't appeal to nobody except every Jackie on 42nd Street. Every Jackie. Yeah. He brings up some good points. I He's mean, right. He he does have some smarts, and then later they're going to stake out an escort service, and he's going to pickpocket the guy that, that came out to get his ledgers or something. Mm-hmm. So he does have some know-how, but it's just it's so pathetic. And I, it, I feel so bad for, for him, too. And he's dying of, like, tuberculosis. What is it, Matt? Is it yes, tubercul- num- tuberculosis? tuberculosis? Yes. If this was 1987, it'd be AIDS, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because that's kind of what it looks like. But yeah, he's just a bad He's sweating all the time. Mm-hmm. He's disheveled. They're lighting cigarettes here and there. He's got holes in his socks. I love it when they go to the Andy Warhol party. He's like, "Hey, you need to spruce yourself up." And he like swoops his hair, and then it looks terrible. Like he looks so bad. He can barely get up those steps to go to the party. Yeah, and he rolls back down them on the way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're, they're trying to figure it out. These two. Uh, they're trying to make men. You mentioned uh, the the key to any sustained living is sunshine and coconut milk. As he's whipping up this dish that he serves him, that smells terrible. It looks like he's cutting a piece of broccoli with a pocket knife. Yeah, it's probably the knife he like cleans his toes with too. Ugh. Yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it's unappetizing. How these guys are sustaining any type of nourishment or sustenance is yet to be seen. The only thing missing from this is them being drunk too, right? Yeah. That's like the one thing that they don't imbibe, but they can't afford it, right? They can't even afford a bottle of Jack. Two things in this, in that meal that he's making. Number one is, despite it's gross Mm -hmm. and looks like it tastes like warmed over sawdust, there is an element of genuine compassion that I think Ratso offers Joe. Now, it's questionable. That's the first thing. The questionable second thing is when does Joe offer it back? Because what I'm going to remind you is in a short period later than the sound you just played, we hear Ratso beg, demand, plead with Joe to be used by his proper name in Rico. Rico. In my own place, you're not allowed to call me Ratso. And he sort of taunts him with, oh, Rico, Rico, Rico. And then most of the rest of the movie, Jesse, he goes back to calling him Ratso. That's just simple dignity that he can't even return to the man who's put him up and trying to feed him and trying to give him some streetwise sense to at least make whatever version of this male prostitution rig they're trying to pull off. Yeah. I think Joe does change, though, at, at some point. We're not, we have we don't have it yet because he does come in willing to take him to Florida. I'll yeah. do whatever I can to get you there. He comes in and brings him medicine. Close. He's going to go get him a doctor. And, like, there is the yeah. compassion from Joe's side a little bit later. It gets there. Yeah. We're not there yet, We're though. Not quite there yet. Uh, I feel real bad for them when they do get thrown out of their house, though. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're just standing there watching this condemned building be taken over. So then they go to they go to the, the cemetery, and 
they see his father there and he tells him he was dumber than you and, and all this, this and that. And they're really at a low moment right here. But I think one of the uplifting scenes mixed within all, all of this right now is this vision he has of, of Florida. I'll play a little bit and then I want your thoughts. Prior to this, the other thing they had to do was break into a shoe shine box to clean Joe's shoes. That way, he's at least a presentable hustler, right? Uh, here in the Florida Vision, they're running on the beach together. Uh, they're getting their own shoe shined by other people. They're running some sort of uh, condominium complex hustle job with all the women in there wanting Joe's services. Uh, the Supreme Pimp who's cooking food for everybody. I like how he... Shaving like the exact same bell pepper in the food and then throw some coconut on it, taste it, and then everyone comes and it's the best meal they ever had. This fantasy of just, it's just daydreaming, right? Mm -hmm. At this moment, do you get ever in this film, specifically in this moment though, that Ratso is into Joe at all romantically? Yeah, uh, I thought a little bit too. I was like, "Well, they're them running on the beach." I was like, "Maybe he kind of fancies a specific future for these together." It's. I think he admires him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could make the case that it's subtly uh, romantic. Look, Schlesinger at the time um, is out now, but was in the closet then. Crily, mm-hmm. uh, the guy that, or Hurley, mm-hmm. the guy that wrote the script, was gay. So, I mean, there are, and obviously, the film has heavy homosexual tendencies in it yeah. or in um, themes. It kind of fits, doesn't it? Yeah. I wonder, the film doesn't really go, go there, but like here I was like, yeah, maybe he sees as like, you know, we talk about financial protection, like yeah. in something like some like it hot. Yeah. And I kind of wondered, I was like, maybe, maybe this is a little bit more than that, but the fantasy ends quicker than it begins. Right. It I mean, does. it's Joe getting thrown out, slapped by this Mark uh, he gets thrown out of this hotel, mm-hmm. and they can't even get that part right. The the, the fantasy comes crumbling down. It's, well, the Ratso character to me in this is really really sad because his dad is a shoe shine boy, mm-hmm. offered him the same opportunity, but Ratso just refuses to do it. And mostly it's because of what happened regarding his dad's health, constantly breathing the shoe shine fumes. You look at Ratso's health. Well, my gosh, if he wasn't a shoeshine boy, what the hell gave him tuberculosis other than maybe the black mold he's breathing constantly in his condemned apartment building? Yeah. I don't know. Who this knows? Is best his apartment. Maybe. Yeah. But once again, we'll see Ratso stoop to a level that he wouldn't normally do for himself, but because I think he generally cares for Joe. Yeah. He'll make the sacrifice and they'll break into the shoe shine box and do the one thing that he'll never want to do again, which is shine the shoes, just to get him polished up and at least looking presentable yeah. to the clientele that Joe's trying to score. It does feel a little bit on the romantic side. Um, pimp to whore, and that's what this relationship is, but with an undercurrent of, and then if we can just get through this, we're off to sunshine together. Yeah. And I don't mean a red and Andy on say Wataneo embrace after some years of absence. Like sure. we're going to go domesticate this 
remaining bit of life with each other and try to find some happiness. It does feel like yeah. they're happily ever after. And in there, Jesse, Ratso's there happily ever after includes Joe. So I think I'm making the case that I think I agree with your maybe a little bit your yeah. statement. Yeah. This all kind of comes to an interesting head here when they get invited to this Andy Warhol party. Those literally were and the war some of Warholites. Those were Andy Warholites in real life. In the film. Yes. Oh wow. Yeah, this scene's pretty wild. Uh, yeah, they, they they he's like, I got him, you know, I got invited to something. Like, we should go check this out. You can come with me. And Ratso's in no condition to go to a party like this. No. To the point where he's stealing the salami. <laughs> yeah. Sir, you don't need to steal that. It's free. And he's like, oh no, 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 put it. And he's putting stuff in the salami in his pants because he needs food for later. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they can't afford any. Mm-hmm. But this party's crazy. I mean, it's just it's Whatever you think of Andy Warhol, I mean, it's that and then just a little more strange and undefined. But like you said, it still stays grounded. I mean, it's if we're ever going down the rabbit hole of hitting rock bottom and debauchery and still trying to make ends meet and desperation, then this fits that to a T, this whole sequence. Because mm-hmm. what comes out of it is, you know, Joe finds a particular liking of this woman who he kind of sees, yeah, it's $20 or is that something you might be into? And she's like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. And, uh, they're kind of on their way. What do you, what do you kind of think of this, this whole sequence and then kind of where it gets us, gets us to finally a little bit of economic success. The mm-hmm. problem is Joe again, so unstreetwise, and who would know what to do if they went into an Andy Warhol party? I wouldn't know what to do. Right. <laughs> Especially from Texas, much less from you, you were in our podcast studio. Here. Yeah. I'd be sitting on a couch and it'd be like, Two people like on all fours. That would be the couch. Exactly. <laughs> You're right. Exactly. How very barat of you. Yes. Um, they finally get a mark. And this woman, I don't think is one that particularly seeks out the services of male prostitutes often, but ah, what the hell? I got nothing to do. This party's weird. Everyone's weird. This would be weird. I'm going to go with this cowboy no, yeah, and make it, it. It was one of those moments where just like, she's tripping on something. He Joe took some sort of pill when he walked in and they just kind of have a moment in like a sequestered space. Are they like, in a dark room? Yeah. And they like, they're, they're hand. They're like, ooh. Playing handsies with each other. And then it's almost more like, yeah, let's do this. So <laughs> to Joe though. Dude, man, the 60s were crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Joe finally has a woman with some money because you can tell by the posh place that they go to that this chick's loaded. Yep. And he's got a chance to start establishing clientele and what happens? Ratso falls down the stairs. And then he can't get it up (laughs) until she challenges in a very clear nod to the graduate for me, which is the Anne Bancroft, Mrs. Robinson calling Benjamin Braddock's manhood into question and, to say, well, if you're too, too virginal and you can't finish the deal, then I get it. It happens all the time. Sure. She calls him gay. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I'll show you gay. Mm-hmm. That's where it gets even weirder, though. Okay, he's getting ready to mount her, and she kind of takes over. And if you watch the way that plays out, yeah. I'm pretty sure he climaxes way before she does. Yeah. She is just. Well, she's like clawing him up, and she's tearing like. Tearing him up. Yeah, it gets really aggressive. <laughs> and he's on the on the bottom. Yeah. So even when he thinks he's scored his first job of like paid job as a male prostitute, she ends up having to take the reins and takes the superior position. And it's almost the money she gives him is pity. Yeah. 
it, I don't even think it's thank you. It's almost like this humorous pity money that she has. Like, thanks for a time I'm never going to forget because what a disaster. But she just kind of set him up with like a friend, right? Yes, she does. You might want to look into this. This could be a good time for you on Joe's poker night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, a crazy scene. And then it's when they're that's when they challenge each other to whatever that game boggle. It's boggle scribbage, but yeah, yeah. And he can't even spell. He's like creating the most basic words, and then money's M O N Y. Money, money. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so you see that intellectual piece come into it where he just can't even, like, exist on that level with her. And she kind of notices, too, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, that was a very interesting scene as she's just kind of draped in this, like, fur coat. <laughs> yeah, so they, they can't they can't consummate the, the business arrangement because, like I said, Joe's either too high or too scared or too flaccid, whatever. Mm-hmm. So they play a board game. And in the playing of the board game, we get to the spelling of lay, fay, stay, gay, mm-hmm. and she puts him on blast. Yeah, it's, it's almost like anger gets him aroused, right? Right. Yeah. I guess that's what it takes. Well, then it alludes to those scenes earlier because we're still getting flashes all this time of that encounter with his original girlfriend and how she got used by all his friends. But then what do you, what did you think of that scene too? Cause like later in the film, it looks like that girl's leaving out of town with like a bag around her. And he's like with those guys, almost like part of the gang. Mm-hmm. And they're like kind of mocking her in the streets. Like, again, there's just so much you can just interpret and take from this film. And it, the film doesn't give you the answers and it shouldn't. Well, if it's post rape, yeah. Then she's already been to the middle institution and then been cleared from the middle institution. Mm-hmm. And this woman that from the dialogue we hear prior to the flashback rape, she loved the hell out of him. He's now brushed his hands up. And it, like, again, well, what does she is, tell him in, in coitus? She tells him like, Oh Joe, like you're the best Joe. Like you're yeah. so big Joe. You're my only Joe. <laughs> yeah. And then he just brushes his hands of her. And if it is, the gang that raped him and her that he's now sidled up with. Yeah. Man, that argument of him being the good guy in this film was taking on even more water. I think, again, I think trying to also outrun his past too, outrun those demons and get ahead of them and start a new life that just goes completely kaput. I think that's why I like this movie so much is the happy ending, tie a ribbon on it, send it, Cherry on top. Mm. It is. That is not this film at all. I mean, if anything, we are treading water and barely staying afloat yeah. the entire time. Mm-hmm. Well the, said. The second he steps to New York, it's like a, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. And it just continues to get a disaster until it's inevitable conclusion. Yep. So uh, let me play this, this next clip for you. I'm scared. What are you scared of? You know what they do to you when when they know you can't. When they find out that you can't walk. Walk. Oh, Christ. I gotta lay down. Okay, okay. You're I gotta on. lay down. Oh, you're gonna lay down now. Just take it easy. Come I'm on. Lay it down. Lay it down. There you go. You put the sun over you. Now you stay here. Where are you going? I gotta get a doctor. What? I gotta get a doctor. You ain't getting me no doctor. No. Nope. You're sick, boy. You need a damn doctor. Hey, no doctors, no cops. Don't be so stupid. What the hell you want me to do? Florida, you got me to Florida. Oh hell, I can't go to Florida now. You just put me on a bus. 
Just put me on a bus. I don't need you. You got the damn fever. Well, how the hell are you going to get to Florida? Just get me on a bus. You ain't sending me to Bellevue. All right, what are you doing? What are you doing that for? It's hot. Sick. No. Sick. Keep it on. hot now. Dumb. Boy, you're really dumb. I don't need you. Dumb. Oh, shut up. Shut up. Just shut up. Dumb cowboy, boy. Damn it. Shut up. And that's the word, right? That if you're a mental uh, head case in New York City, the words you do not want to hear are Bellevue. <laughs> right. Because that's just, they're going to lock you up. Yep. And so he's like, don't call them because you're going to send me there. And that, that's not what I want right now. So it kind of becomes all about Florida at this point. So I got a little bit money from this post Andy Warhol uh, deal that that kind of went south, but then kind of didn't. Um, I got a new gig set up for this Thursday at eight o'clock. But you're dying here. If you want to go to Florida, we got to go like right now. So now. let me let me see what I can do. And he strikes up this this kind of old guy when he's shooting Penny Arcade. Uh, and this guy again, he can't pay him, can't render services. It's kind of a shit show. And this is the moment we talked about earlier where Joe beats the hell out of him and steals his wallet of like $200, $300. Again, the villainous side of Joe kind of coming to the forefront. But I think with the intentions of, I need to help my my friend here. Yeah. It's just, I guess, insofar as he's standing by Ratso. But the insinuation when he takes the phone after that guy calls, I guess, the cops and gags him with it. Mm is he's choking him out, and that dude's dead. Yeah. He killed that guy. <laughs> um, again, for the story and the characters that we care about, he and Ratso, but it still didn't change the fact that that's a pretty brutal way to steal some money from somebody, especially, Jesse, when you think about this. Mm-hmm. They're leaving anyway. Yeah. They just need a little spending cash. They yep. need they need a means for clothing and food. I mean, if they're going to stick around in New York City, I could understand why you wouldn't want there to be any witnesses, per se. Yeah. They're leaving. Yeah. This brings into Joe's either unstable mental capabilities or his just lack of mental faculties, just how stupid he is. Sure. It could be both. Yeah. Yeah. But we get on the bus, finally... We're going to go from NYC to Florida. Oh, my God. Kill me as well. Because yeah. what is that? What did, I th- what did you say? We're going to get there at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning, but it's like 9 o'clock that morning? Oh, my God. 24 Oof. hours? Straight, yes. Boom. The longest I've ever been on a bus was to Branson, Missouri. And oh. I think it was 14, 12 hours. Brutal. Oh, God. The worst. Just so cramped you couldn't even barely stand by the time you got up. It's just you get, you get that, that, that hum... And so your ears don't pop, but then you're in constant motion. And then we went to breakfast at a uh, Golden Corral. No, Shoney's. You remember Shoney's? Sure do. Oh my god, I dude, I projectile vomited in the lobby of Shoney's because I was just so sick from the bus ride. Oh, and then you know what? You know what's the 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 cure for? Motion sickness at 6 o'clock in the morning? It ain't greasy buffet shonies. I can tell you that much. Oh, my God. It was brutal. So taking that from NYC to Florida, oh, I couldn't do it. No. Uh, it's just I can't, dr- I can't drive like that anymore. Like I mean, Back in the day, as a, as a kid, I, I could. I liked a r- good road trip. I could read in the car. I could play Game Boy in the car, Tetris. Like, get me on a plane, and I'll meet you there. <laughs> Yeah, I'm you'll, with you. And you'll come with me? Maybe like, maybe six hours, and then about that. Six hours is the limit, absolutely. Here to Vegas, maybe. Yeah, sure. 
But yeah, here we go. Uh, Ratso's in bad shape, right? Yeah. I mean, he's sweating. He can only sit. He can't even really get off the bus. So, you know, when he goes to the bathroom. Here I am going to Florida. My leg hurts. My butt hurts. My chest hurts. My face hurts. And like that ain't enough. I got to pee all over myself. <laughs> That's funny. I'm falling apart here. He just, you know what happened? You just took a little rest up. Wasn't on the schedule. interesting when it's laughing but it's kind of like a half cry half laugh and then it turns into coughing i mean it's just he's in the pits right now they both kind of think know what's coming but here's the good thing for the relationship Maybe since the film has started, that's the first time the two of them share a laugh together. Sure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's at Ratso's expense, which Mm -hmm. is a pretty consistent theme up to this point, so let's not change it. Yeah. But there's no doubt at this point that they've traversed whatever animosity or conflict the two of them might have had, and at least they're they're friendly and good friendly with each other. Joe is going to some significant lengths to try to give Ratso one last hurrah. To the point where he even ditches his wardrobe, right? Big, big moment. I was waiting for you to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he they, they make a stop. He gets down, buys some new clothes for the two of them, mm-hmm. and throws all the cowboy stuff in the trash. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of it's letting, letting the past die, right? Yeah. Whatever was in Texas that followed him to New York, and I think a lot of demons followed him to New York City. Mm-hmm. I think it's gone now, right? And maybe this is the good deed that he needed to do to get past that, whatever that whatever shape or form that's in. I like that. Yeah. Uh, it's helping him move on to the point where there's a moment where I think he's getting donuts from this diner. And this girl kind of gives him eyes. and was like, you've been to Florida before. And he's like, no first time. And she's like, have a good time. And it almost looks like that's something like plant the seeds. There's your mark. Have it out with her kind of a thing. And it's just like, it's just a friendly encounter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not everything has to be the sex romp. <laughs> so is, yeah. Is this then a story? A redemption story? It could be a little bit, especially if they do spend a good deal of time with those past flashbacks, whether it's molestation and then that gang rape sequence, whatever military servitude. Vietnam is right in the middle of all this stuff. Yeah, it could be a redemption story. It could be just trying to make amends for the man that he became. And if Ratso is what brought it out of him, I mean, good for him. I don't even know if the answer to that matters. I was just sort of thinking that the fact that it might be a buddy movie or a rot drama or this controversial, salacious piece of filmmaking that everyone wanted to see or nobody wanted to see or redemption or what have you. The point being is I think you have a really well fleshed out Mm -hmm. piece of material. Yeah. Let's talk about the rating for just a minute. Sure. Well, when I think X, I think pornography. Of course you do, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of the way that it goes. Um, there's a lot of pieces in this, but the person I want to bring up is a man named Arthur B. Kim. Krim. His earliest life in the public had to do working with JFK and then later with LBJ. Interesting. He left both those two and is eventually going to become, let me get this in order here, um, 
the chairman of Eagle Lion Films from 46 to 49. And so in between some of his work in film, he's going to have some political leanings. Uh, United Artists president from 1951 to 1978. Hang on, we, we do stu- uh, Studio Loco from time to time. United Artists is a weird studio, right? Yeah. I mean, like Rocky... Raging Bull, James Bond, and you know that logo when you see it, right? Sure. And then ready for this one? Yeah. Orion. Oh. From 1978 to 1992. Oh. Orion's heyday, man. Yeah. Yeah. So this guy is a visionary, very smart, and then later had some pretty strong ties in the Democratic Party. He was the one that was the suggesting body to put the X rating on this film. It went through a whole process. And as you said, the Hayes Code is dying if not dead. So there's just this motion picture association body that is evaluating the source material in films. And they have discussions from removing this scene to changing this. To Krim's credit, he said no. But they did meet with a therapist. And the therapist was in that early version of what it meant to be homosexual, thinking that it was contagious if exposed. Silly, right? And Krim kind of shared that same belief. I mean, he went to the expert and the expert said so, so he wasn't going to argue. Krim was worried that if young people saw it, it might change the way they evaluated their sexuality. So he changed the rating from R, which they'd worked very hard to get to X. So then the movie going public would pin it on the Motion Picture Association, which essentially defunct at that time. Mm -hmm. So you're yelling at a ghost deflecting all of the blame to the rating agency. And then guess what else? Mm-hmm. Creating a wild amount of controversy and buzz over this film. And then it goes on to win best picture, right? And the night it opens, <laughs> they, they didn't think it was going to make a penny. Sure. They thought it'd be a fairly well-received art house kind of film. Sure. And the night it opened in New York city, there was a line twice around the theater for people to get in. And the story goes from there. Controversy can sometimes be pretty good for your film. It went back from R to X, I think, four different times. Well, I was going to ask you. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I couldn't, I don't, my history of the MPAA, and there's a good documentary I saw years ago. I think it's called This Is Not Rated, mm. and it's about the MPAA and how it's almost a clandestine group of people that's in charge of rating and requesting edits of films no one knows who they are it's like it's like a it's like a stendral syndicate like, wow. it's like a clandestine group which i think is fairly interesting the illuminati right yeah yeah uh, and then you know of course the slasher films come under heavy mpa scrutiny in the 1980s but uh i didn't know if there was art yet at this time in filmmaking so you said there was so there was kind of a back and forth between our and then to go with X, that's, that's that's remarkable. The big issue had to do with, although not seen, but the implied, heavily implied uh, movie house scene. Mm. That was the one that they really asked them to walk back and to... They don't even show anything. Krim and Schlesinger and Hreli's credit, H-E-R-I-L-Y, Hreli, yeah. Hreli, oh, Hreli, I'm not sure, Hurley, I'm not sure, I, Hurley, I don't know how you say his name, though it's screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, they said no. And Krim, as the financier, chief financier of this, said, I, that's the story. It is what it is, and I'll give him some credit for not backing down. And you can tell the guy obviously had a pretty successful career because there's a couple of huge studios that he ran in there. So was there any significant cuts that had to be made in this? Not really. The movie was pretty much um, released as shot. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the screenwriter has a pretty interesting story, though, too. Okay. Um, pretty good friends with Mr. William Faulkner mm. and Aeneas Nin. Now, Hurley, Riley, whatever the hell his <laughs> name is. In the book you gave me, it's not phonetically. H-E-R-I-O-Y is a strange spelling. Hurley? Maybe. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. He's a pretty troubled writer. Okay. I would say there's some moderate success with a lot of, like, one-act plays, and I think at times this does somewhat have a stage act, like a stage play feel to it. Sure. Um, but the early influences in him and in his career to keep going when it got tough was through Aeneas Nin. Like, they were thick as thieves and then have a wild falling out, essentially because, and if you know anything about Aeneas Nin, that's not some pure um, driven snow virginal ingenue. Like she's got, you know, a bit of an edge there. And if you read Delta Venus, if you have any questions about that, mm-hmm. maybe there was, and she knew he was gay, but maybe there was a feeling that down the road, there might be something more between the two of them. Mm, interesting. But he goes through a period of like lover after lover. And when he gets to New York, he has, I don't want to say us Riley, a similar experience to Joe Buck, but it is tough for him there. Struggles with insomnia, struggles with writing in and out of some relationships. Tough, tough to make it in New York City. Mm-hmm. Eventually he will. Um, a lot having to do with uh, meeting Tallulah Bankhead of all people oh and God. getting to cast her in a couple of things. Tallulah she, Bankhead. She came up, I listened to a podcast earlier this week on High Noon. Oh yeah. And her name came up because- Instead of Grace Kelly? Well, no, she came up and one of her goals coming to Hollywood was to fuck Gary Cooper. No kidding. Yeah. And when they asked her about it later in life, she said, mission accomplished. To Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Was... What a great story. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the Schlesinger screenwriting, Krim, not a homosexual, but that that triumvirate, if you will. Yeah. Despite the barbs and the scrutiny and the controversy that went with it, stayed to with what the script was written as and delivered, you know, a cinematic masterpiece. Crazy. Crazy how it all comes together, right? Smart, though, with Krim, though. Think about that. We're going to label this X. That way, when people are pissed because the gay material in there is unsuitable for young eyes and it might sway them, they'll be shouting at ghosts. Because I might believe that a little bit myself, but I can't come out and say it. Mm-hmm. So let's give them a false flag to yell at. It's pretty ingenious. So when this thing went on to get nominated for Best Picture Director, two Best Actor nominations, it had to have been super shocking for them, right? The yeah. success? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, controversy sometimes like, yeah, maybe we should go check that out. Everyone's talking about it. Let's see what it's all about. Mm-hmm. The Exorcist is a good example of that, too. So, And if you think about it, in New York City, you could argue that there might have been a time like around the Stonewall riots that mm. this would have, in contemporary culture, found some legs. But this is two years prior to Stonewall. Yeah. So this is, this is material that in that time is still, even in a place that is a little bit more forward-thinking or yeah. as many people there exposed as New York is, this is still pretty buried in the closet. Sure progressive for its time yeah yeah so we're on the last legs of this bus tour i have a few more questions i I wonder we'll know if you have answers for me but in a little bit uh and you know we changed the clothes we're in new garb we're here in sunny miami beach and the next time we cut to the uh, interior bus day uh 
Ratso's just catatonic, just sitting there, eyes open. He's dead. Brutal. Uh, I mean, the first time I saw this, I mean, this. I think this hit me pretty hard because I think at this time I was really buying their friendship, relationship, whatever you want to call it. And they finally get there, and he's finally getting what he wants, which is the sunshine and coconut milk, which is to sustain life. He can't even survive the journey there. Uh, Brutal. And they stop the bus, and just the lack of respect, I guess, that Ratso has not received this entire film. Oh, it's nothing, people. Don't pay attention. We'll be with you shortly. And it's just a little bit of spat of illness. And then, you know, Joe puts his arm around his shoulder, and that's kind of it, right? So, you gotta finish the bus ride before they'll even take the dead men off because he doesn't even matter enough to be removed from exactly. the bus. Exactly. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. My question to you this is the end of the film. We fade to black with uh, John Barry's harmonica. I'm gonna play a little bit here in a second, but it just, it makes me so sad. I just. It's just it's just like the death rattle sound is what it sounds like to me. Ratso's dead. Joe's here. What's what does Joe do going forward? Does he get back into hustling? I mean, that's the thing he knows and does well, but I almost want to say he doesn't do that. My answer would be because of what you brought up in the diner that he's not gonna get back into the hustle. Um, I don't know, maybe he headed back to a kitchen. Maybe he's um It's not a good outlook, right? No, but at least it's warmer, and I think it has the possibility to at least be based on a more solid foundation than the one the two of them were trying to build. But I, I don't think he's going back to New York. I'm pretty well. He threw the the cowboy clothes away, so he's going to make a home in New in in Florida. Yeah, I'll take my chances in Florida versus New York. I just don't know what Joe's going to do. No, I have no idea what he's going to do. 1969. I still think. This is this is a fairly shocking ending to just yeah. cut to black on. Mm-hmm. Your dead your dead friend in your arms, and that's it. And then like there was like that was interesting. I watched yes uh, Thursday. It's like a ten second gap of just black, and then the credits roll up. So they like give the audience time to process that like this is the end of the movie. We're not going to have any kind of happy ending here. We're not going to know what's going to happen to Joe after this. Cut the credits on your way. I really like it. I mean, I like endings like this. As tragic as it is for these characters, and it's fiction, people, come on. But I still feel bad for them. Mm-hmm. I feel bad for Ratso. I feel bad for Joe. I kind of feel bad for any Dustin Hoffman character that finishes the movie on a bus. Right? <laughs> What's next? Death or marriage, the, a loveless marriage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, any alternative castings to Ratso, or was Hoffman kind of always in consideration? Yeah, they wanted him from the word go. That's awesome. Yeah. Often you don't get what you want. I mean, as a director, or as like a casting person, if you like want that guy, it's always like, oh, he's busy or he's doing this other film. But doesn't mean that was an easy sell, though. Sure. I'll give Hoffman some credit for willing to step into that new Hollywood version of anti-hero. Mm-hmm. And this is also still that. Um, back to his credit, though, that he saw the potential in the Ratso character speaks volumes about, I think, what a titan of the industry he was for well over a decade you know around this time hoffman and we'll do this film one of these days it'll be a mammoth day in rice mile films Mm. but i wonder if he was ever in consideration for any of the parts in the godfather either michael or tom hagan or fredo like i say could he be fredo he could have been a good fredo yeah dude junk is always amazing but yeah just him being around that circle around that time you when you say you throw out a name and Hoffman's got to come up, right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, like these are like the names being thrown around like for characters at the time. Sure. Robert Redford a lot. To the point, you know, there's just another thing. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts this week too about Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Superman the movie 2, 3, and 4. Just the names being tossed to play that character from James Caan to Redford to like, it's almost a miracle that they went with an unknown, right? Uh, and it is what it is. Uh, I, I can't see James Caan playing someone like that. No way. No. I can see him in that suit with his super broad shoulders. No way. I don't know if his shoulders would fit in that costume, but. Especially with all the hair on him. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a miracle. I mean, we talked a lot about last week with editing with Kurosawa, how important that is to filmmaking. Man, casting will make or break your film, too. Mm-hmm. The right person in the right role will make it happen. By the way, to the Kurosawa and your posting on Insta this week, that animated version that you posted. Oh, yeah. Is, is that a Mondo thing? I think so. And it's good. Yeah. It looks so good. Just him with his, like, white eyes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with the arrows. Oh, gosh. This cask has been a lot of fun. I think it's brought out a lot of thematic elements, you know, present in Westerns, but also I think it's had us revisit some films that you and I haven't seen in a long time, yeah. too. Um, and it's been a good revisit for us just reevaluating like how we feel about them. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite tasting note of Midnight Cowboy? Ooh, boy, that is a tough question. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say I think it's the quick way that they're able to give Joe Buck an intriguing backstory through the flashbacks of prior events in his life without being so heavy-handed that it feels like you're being flashed back. It's done in a psychedelic way. The best one is when he's chasing Ratso down after being left in the pederasses. Yeah, the baptism. Um, right, the post-baptism. Mm-hmm. And it's this crazy, psychedelic, almost drug-induced state of looking for Ratso down every train corridor, and he sees him everywhere, and he's never there. And as that's happening, he's just blindly chasing ghosts. The ghosts of his past are also chasing him. That is masterful filmmaking. Well, it's also the, the, that happens again, too, when... Uh... He falls asleep for the first time at Ratso's Chantate. Yeah. And the police show up to the gangbang situation and Ratso's like one of the guys. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? It's just this guy is also going to be a harbinger of your doom. Mm. Brutal. Oh, my favorite sequence oh, it might be the Andy Warhol party. Okay. I don't know. I've been a big fan lately of just like just completely psychotic cinema that just is completely out of control. But it's germane to the story. I don't know if that makes any sense to the people out there, but that scene is just, it is, when I say Andy Warhol party, it is what it is. People dressed up, they're eating weird food, they're eating it off of people's bodies, they're dropping acid, they're, it's dark rooms and blue lights and fish people. <laughs> it's just, it's weird. Yeah. But man, I, I just, I roll with it. It's just, it's just, it's that type of like experimental cinema that I think is, can be really intriguing sometimes. As long as it doesn't completely derail your story. To that, then there's a fine art to make there. Sure that there happens. is. You got to be. It's you got to just really be careful with, with how, how you're doing that. What's the? Oh my god! Moment of midnight cowboy when Joe Buck chokes out that guy at the end and kills him. Do mm. you think it's almost irredeemable? Almost. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Almost. It's just. Very, very, I can understand why he does it. This is a guy that's been on the edge. And now that his only friend is 
in a place where there's no, there's no going back. What else is there to lose? I get why he does it, but man, I just keep going back. He was leaving. Yeah. That part obviously really bothered me. I keep bringing it up, right? They were leaving. He didn't need to do that, but it's what makes this period of film so good. They had their finger on the pulse of what the anti-hero would do Mm -hmm. when faced with these terrible circumstances They may not make the best decision, but it's rooted with a just or noble cause to them. Do you think that's kind of, it's also how real people I think would react in a situation of desperation like that. I think someone would really do that. Yeah. Or Popeye Doyle would really do something, the things he does in the French connection. Perfect example. The finger on the pulse of how people were at that seven-year gap that we just talked about, I think is perfect. Well, Krim and the other guys I was talking about, I know I'm going to get you back in a minute. Yeah. Had seen a pretty heavy decline in filmmaking for almost two decades prior to this period in filmmaking. Okay. The days of the Cleopatra, been here, epic, an American in Paris, like that shit was dead. Mm -hmm. People were not wanting to see that anymore. And it makes sense with what was going on in the world. It's pretty hard to paint your wagon when Vietnam is blowing up on the TV every night. Dude, the 60s were crazy. Right. And it's the rebellious nature. And cinema was struggling. Yeah. So you have to give this type of filmmaking, whether it's experimental or avant-garde or auteur or whatever you want to call it, but that that new Hollywood, which includes Coppola and includes... Mm. It's going to include Spielberg and Scorsese, all those guys. Bogdanovich and all of his oh, yeah. trifling. and Those guys breathed some new, heavy, gritty life into a corpse that was leaking glam and glitz by the day. Oh, yeah. When you're blowing presidents away in Dallas, you're blasting yeah. African-Americans with fire hoses yeah. in the streets. You know, people on the daily are dying in Vietnam. Your film can't be... So prim and proper. It has to have some edge to it. And I would argue that it happened again after 9-11 when, you know what? The James Bond of the Pierce Brosnan ain't going to cut it anymore. We need some grit with our Bond. We need some grit with our Batman. Torture porn is a complete uh, outcome of that as well, too. So uh, when the news is more edgy than the movie you paid for. Exactly. Why pay for the movie? Just stay home and watch the news. Exactly, yeah. And it's real. It's Mm -hmm. not made up. God, that's a stunning statement about, Mm -hmm. like, the society at that time, isn't it? Yeah, just just media, yeah. Yeah, it's just... But the films that came out of that, the response to that then was, this is the world, what are you going to do with that? And then these guys, Schlesinger and Friedkin and Mike Nichols... John Borman, all these guys just go, uh, Dennis Hopper, they just like, here's what it looks like. And it looks fucking awesome, everybody. <laughs> yeah. It's, and the executives behind it, like Krim, that had the balls to see it through. Yeah. To not walk it back, to let it happen. Exactly. Not to sugarcoat it and cut it down and water it down. Uh, yeah, they let it play out. Uh, or we, is it my favorite? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> no, that was great. I loved that. Uh, my oh my god moment. Um, it might be all of Joe's flashbacks. I mean, they're so troubling in a variety of different ways, from just molestation to I want to know what the hell was going on with that baptism. It's not even like a baptism in a church. It's like uh, Bull River. Yeah, Joe. You know, at the river, just like being dunked in the water, and like to me taking that. I bet Joe can't swim now. 
I bet he has a fear of water, which we never get into. Yeah. Uh, something weird. Good thing he's going to Florida. Yeah, good thing he's going to Florida. He spent some time in the ocean. Jeez. Uh, they're troubling, but yet it's not the movie. It's part of the movie. And you can make what you can of it. And I really like that. That's one one of the reasons I like this movie. Yeah. Who's the master distiller on Midnight Cowboy? Boy, there's three or four to choose from here. Uh, I'm going to go with Voight. I think as your initial appearance on screen, this is a absolute masterpiece that he delivers. Although I can make a very clear case that I don't think it's the best performance in this film. I'm going to give it to Voight though. Okay. Because I think you're probably going to go the other way. And so that way we hit them both. I can't believe that this was his first film. I think that's pretty surprising to me. Yeah. I guess I'll go with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. It's I said it earlier. I think this might be his best acting performance as mm-hmm. crippled Ratso Rizzo. I mean, this that little walk he had when they're on the Brooklyn or Verrazano Bridge or wherever, and he's kind of like skimping his limp along. How's he doing that? I mean, that's it's a performance. And the, the stuff on the street, the way he talks and this and that, and I pissed myself. It's pathetic. But he's so good at it, and I feel bad for him from the word go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it made me think. I kind of did the same thing you did. I was like, "Man, graduate this straw dogs, little big man." Then you take that into seventies with Kramer versus Kramer, oh all the God, presidents, yeah. man, dude, man. Hoffman had a run. I mean, he was he was on fire, and he's just he's so good in all those movies in in a variety of different ways. This is so different than Benjamin Braddock. Benjamin Braddock is the pathetic college graduate who doesn't know what to do with this life and then like falls into this trap with the MILF, right? Right. Uh, Little Big Man is just another crazy adventure. And that's so different than Straw Dogs, this emasculated character that can't take the situation until he decides it's the right thing to do. Well, go one more and go Tootsie. Put it in there. Yeah. I know we're forgetting some other ones from the 70s that that he did that are also really well regarded, but the guy had a run. Yeah. Absolutely. Him, Pacino... The um, Nero around this time, uh, those guys, uh, Nicholson, like they were, they were tapped into something like just, they were picking the right roles, right? They were. Yeah. You gave a hot take earlier. I'll match it. I might today in this moment say that Dustin Hoffman has a better career than Al Pacino does in Hollywood. And I would also double down on that and say, I think he might be more talented. Sure. I don't know. We'd have to compare. We'll have to do another Pacino, right? And then well, for every, we'll, we'll flip it. <laughs> for every dog day, there's a there's a Midnight Cowboy, too. So. Sure. How are you going to rate and grade Midnight Cowboy? Our rating system, Rock Gut, the worst of the worst. It was Morbius for me a few weeks back. We have Well, Well Bourbon. Uh, what is Well Bourbon? Usually it's like, that's like Jack, right? Black Jack, yeah. Number seven. Jack Daniels, number seven. Uh, and then you have Call. Makers. Makers, which I don't I can't even really do makers anymore. I'm sort of with you. I'm gonna sound Gentleman me, Jack, maybe. Call me hoity toity, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. You have single barrel, unique specimens, and then you have your tippy top shelf, the best of the best. Where are you going with this? The best of the best. Top ten of all time. The last time I checked, I think this was somewhere in the low or I guess upper, like forty one, forty two. Film Registry's greatest of all times. I think it peaked as high as number 22. Mm. Not that that goes into influencing my decisions because whatever. But I do think that a movie that is this brave and this entertaining and this new is noteworthy. 
there's a lot of films that try to do all three of those things. And if one of those goes south, the entire film is defunct and it's a disaster. This didn't. And it might be in that period, that new Hollywood 67 to 75 that we're talking about. I think this or maybe last picture show, which both kind of are the closing of the West in their own way. Mm. Oh yeah. Right. We got to do that. I know we really do. Mm -hmm. It might be, about the best that this period has to offer. Uh, it's up there. I don't, I, I'd have to look at all of them and I, I, I cold, I couldn't do that, but yeah, it's a spectacular piece of filmmaking. And for as gritty and grim as it is, I still find it wildly entertaining and kind of in a sick way, kind of funny in some points sure. laughing oh, at the abs- characters because they're so inept. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I cracked up when he said, "Yeah, I get carsick on a boat." I thought that 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 was that was hilarious, and even Ratso and his his pathetic nature, I thought it was fairly comical at times too. When Joe Buck gets hustled by a sixty year old woman at the beginning, you just like, "Oh my god!" It's it's laughably absurd how bad he is at this. We got to do another cask one of these days. Of we'll just do this period. We'll pick three films from it. Last Picture Show, Deliverance, uh, mm. and we'll, we'll we'll find another one in there. But like this era is just. Straw Dogs. Robert Altman, MASH. I mean, it's just these filmmakers were coming out around this time, and they were just really tapped into something remarkable. As long as you don't make me have to watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah, we can skip that one. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Top shelf for me. This was, I, I was when I was watching it, I, I kind of was like, oh, my goodness, this is in contention for one of the best films we've talked about on this podcast. I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, best picture winner, of course, that year, 1960. I think it won director and screenplay. Yep. Why wasn't Hoffman or Boyd or they were both in the actor category? Yep. And all credit to John Wayne. I mean, we spung his praises in Liberty Valance. He won for True Grit, which is that's like a legacy award. Yeah. That's why. I think Hoffman should have won it this this year. Or if he was, if the other guy was in supporting, that, that guy would have won that award. Because. Mm-hmm. Whoever won that, I, I didn't even remember, and I looked at it just before you came over. Uh, yeah, it's it's remarkable. It's a great film. It's this period is so much fun. The studio era of filmmaking, and even today's version of filmmaking, which is green screen, doesn't appeal to me at all. Like if I ever made it as a director, I would not want to make one of those films. But I would like to make a film like this mm-hmm. on the streets of New York, running and gunning, getting shots where we can. We almost hit the lead actor with a taxi cab. Like just that's that's filmmaking. Those are movies. Uh, they have a vibrancy. They have they have a texture. to A them. life like they, a, a volume, right? Yeah. They're not sterile. They're not yeah. uh, cookie cutter. They're not synthetic. Mm-hmm. They have they were tapped into a time uh, in America specifically that was interesting. It was the times reflected the films and I don't think it, it's never been done better since. Mm-hmm. I mean, 60, let's do this. 66 or 67 to 75. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it'll never be better than that. There's, there's no way. I don't even care if the, in 10 years, if we're on the precipice of some great awakening, it could never top that. The films that came out in that 10 year span, Never. Yeah. Tippy top shelf. This was a phenomenal. And ladies and gentlemen, keep physical media alive. Go buy the Criterion Blu-ray of Midnight Cowboy. That transfer is amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So good. Yes, it is. Uh, it's uh, a must-have. It's a must-watch. Yeah, absolutely. Don't let the X-rating scare you. You're not going to see any pornography in this film. It's Thursday night. 
Nine o'clock television, pretty much by man, maybe not. It's light R by today's standards. I was gonna say, if anything, I'm surprised they haven't gone back and like re-rated the film to just be R. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's just not rated now, right? Yeah, that's the clean way to say X. Mm -hmm. But no, this is a this is a great addition to this Western four ways cask. But let's wrap this up with our nightcap. the harmonica as an instrument used like that i like it uh maybe in the western it plays mm-hmm. um, outside of that i could once probably upon a time in the it. west right yeah yeah uh yeah i think it's use in jazz occasionally is really unique as well let me give one to you what do you think about pedal steel mm. depends on its use yeah 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 for as much as the harmonica has notes it's all pretty much the same note to me with a slight variance. Mm-hmm. That's such a bad way with my it's, ingenue ears to describe it, but you're almost it's in limited. It for, you're in it for the sound. Yeah. And I think the tonality of the, what this, what it's doing in, in the context of the sound, like this, it's uses. <laughs> well, it's, it's tinny and pitchy. It's hard to find. But Ratso's like dead in his arms. It's like It's almost like it's crying, right? Yes. It's a way to have mm-hmm. the characters cry through music. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> go Just figured out the uh, riddle of the harmonica today on the show. There you go. What's next? World hunger next week. Maybe. <laughs> okay, our nightcap. The nightcap tonight is also sort of inspired by the film. And I thought a good way to approach this would be, let's talk about some other controversial films. And this would be movies that for one reason or another you deem controversial and rank them in order of three, two, and one, one being your favorite. And you can have one and only one honorable mention if you want to take it. Okay. So you just do your three out of my three, two, two, one, one. Sounds good. Number three for me, I am going to tackle the subject, the scandalous subject of violence (laughs) and rape. Uh, We mentioned it on this podcast already. It's Straw Dogs, which is a film I watched two months ago. Dude, we got to do this movie on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, it's Sam Peckinpah's depiction of violence in Northern Ireland <laughs> is striking. Dustin Hoffman is a teacher. His wife gets raped by the townies. He pays no mind to that. But then when he must defend a vagrant that they're trying to kill, he turns into the hero. What do you say about that? You know what I mean? And it's gruesome. It's violent. And... It was, I think, banned for several years, I think, in maybe the United Kingdom or maybe overseas, maybe in, uh, like, Japan. Uh, it didn't see the light of day for, for several audiences, and it was because of its 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 violence. The last act of the movie, it just, they let it fly, man. I'd love to have a female presence on for that show because during the rape sequence, there is a very clear yet interesting twist that happens mm-hmm. Towards the very end, I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag, but yeah, boy, there is a loaded three and a half seconds in what is a loaded four minute bit. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see the remake with uh, Yeah Skarsgård, James Marsden, and yeah. Kate Bosworth? Good, good. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've never seen it. Yep. I'll check it out. 
Uh, my number three. <sighs> okay, only on this list because of how it was viewed at first and then almost walked back and then changed because it had a controversial ending is Double Indemnity. Mm. Thank God it didn't, through the controversy of ending the way we all saw it, get that silly post bit in the gas chamber final epitaph on the tombstone where we knew what happened. I don't think that would have ruined the movie, but it would have changed it. That movie almost was never released. The material was too salacious, much like Dustin Hoffman and the credit we gave him today and John Voight. I've got to give it to all of the players in that from Wilder to Stanwyck to McMurray to tackle that salacious material. And we've done the show in case we don't know what I'm talking about. Go yep. back and listen what to is it. That I think Rice, it's episode six. Right. Rice mile episode four. Around I mean, there. It might be four. <laughs> Go listen to the archives. <laughs> or that might be a bad show compared no, to we've come I, along now. I think but. content wise, it's still good. Yeah. Yeah. There's a big thing we did on that on the Hayes code. As a matter of fact, we did a big breakdown on the Hayes code in that episode. I know. I remember I was getting sick around that time and I was okay for that one. I was getting, I was pretty sick for uh basic instinct and then uh, we did Alien, and I was I was done, right? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what a good cast that was. That was Basic Instinct, Double Indemnity, and... Uh, Postman. No, no, no. Uh, I just said it. Basic Instinct, Double Indemnity, and... Oh, God. Was it another noir? Yes. It was uh, Serenity. Oh Serenity, God. Basic Instinct, and Double Indemnity. Kind of a fun cast at the end of the day. That was. <laughs> All right, number two. Number two for me, I am going to go with the subject of Christianity. How dare you say anything bad about the Bible or God? But I liked its take in this film. I'm going with Monty Python's The Life of Brian. It's my favorite Monty Python film, but when you have your end crucifixion scene ending in, always look on the bright side of life. <laughs> oh, man, you're going to rub the Christians the wrong way, right? Yeah. Being a biggest dickus in there, uh, man. Dude, Life of Brian is an exercise in smart British comedy. That's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. I like Holy Grail, but Life of Brian, I think, is funnier. I think it's more taboo. Uh, there's full frontal nude, male nudity in that film, and yeah, whistling on the cross is just that's just an image I'll never get out of my head. Yeah. So, good choice. Have at you with you with you will with the Monty Python crew. Uh, number two, I'm going with Freaks, mm. just for the exploitative nature of the cast they used. Freaks was banned for like 30 years in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For as much as I think that movie's old now and feels old when you watch it, the bit where the Freaks are chasing down, um, Jesus, what's her name? Cleopatra? Mm-hmm. Is still really terrifying and hard to watch. Should we do Freaks on the show? Yeah, days? we probably should. Yeah. Google gobble. We accept her one of us. Dude, I'll never forget the human torso rolling up a, a cigarette and then lighting it. And yeah. the guy has no arms or legs, ladies and gentlemen. Tough, <laughs> tough film. But good film. I wrote a hell of a paper on that in college. Oh, really? Just about the... It was it was freaks and the use of the uncanny. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it was a film that ruined Todd Browning, uh, his career. Yeah. Post... How would you like to be Todd Browning? Dude, Dracula was a huge hit. What are you following this up with? Freaks. Dead. Done. <laughs> Nothing. Yep. Brutal. Yep. For a good film. Yeah, I think it's I think it's it's horrifying. It's 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 honest in its depictions of the circus individuals and I think people with disabilities. 
any other film that would skirt around that would put a real person portraying someone with the cone head, but not the actual person. You know what I mean? Right. They got real people to play those parts. I think that's fairly progressive in its own right. Right. Good choice. My number one, one of my all-time favorite films, one of my all-time favorite horror films, ended up on the salacious UK video nasties list, 1981's The Evil Dead. Mm. I don't think it got off the list until 2005. Damn, really? 81 to 2005? Yeah, un- unedited. I think they, it was released with, like, heavily cut. Uh, yeah, the video nasties is a cask into of itself of what the UK premiere deemed unacceptable and it was a lot of violence it was a lot of like rape and weird nazi stuff that they were doing like nazi werewolf women and the yet like stuff like that but when you watch evil dead now it's 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 more comedy than anything yeah i can see why it got on the list but yeah like it should never have been on the list at the same time Mm, good choice yeah all right number one for me Mm. last tango in paris I, to this day, still don't know if I really love that movie or I'm just so shocked at what Brando did and got away with in that film. Anytime you bring Brando in, you bring a whole level of crazy to your set, and that works pretty good in some ways, and in some ways it doesn't. Yeah. The cast and the people that are involved in that movie do not have pleasant things to say about him or it. But it sure is interesting. I've and, never seen it. Oh, you've never I've seen never it. Never seen Last Dingo in Paris. Oh, we have we have to do like that Wild Orchid and something else then. Like the, I I am aware of Don, the, I don't know, some. I know wrong. I'm aware of the scenes you speak of. I've oh, heard Jesse. I've heard the stories. Yeah, yeah. We got to do that film to the point where uh, I do know for a fact that they want they were scheduled to shoot Superman the movie in Rome, and they had to move it to Pinewood Studios in London. Because if they shot in Rome, Marlon Brando would have been arrested for rape. Uh, yeah, uh, all all those charges against him. Yep. So he's like, I can't go there because I'll be arrested and I can't be in your movie. Like what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and man. I'm also not going to read your script either, Krypton. Right. <laughs> that, huh? You got my wheels turning on on what that cask would be, but yeah, we. I, you think maybe, about a Marlon Brando cask now? Oh, that's a good one. And thought about Superman that. the movie Apocalypse Now and Last Tango. We might even boot Superman the movie and do the wild one. That'd be interesting. Or screw that. Why don't we do um uh on the waterfront? Yeah, on the waterfront. That'd be good. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. He's an enigma. Yeah, just mm-hmm. uh, like I could I would never the, the, to me, the work of working with him would never be worth the production on screen. Mm-mm. To Coppola's credit for just be willing to put up with that for two separate productions mm-hmm. is beyond me. Yeah. When he shows up, yeah, I haven't looked at your script, but can you put it on these cue cards over here? I'll I'll read it that way. Well, <laughs> hell no, man. Fired. Fired, good, yeah. Good thing you didn't. Yeah. Because he's good, too. You know, even, I know it. Even in that half-assed way, he's still a pretty good actor. I know it. He's got a presence to him, uh, but great choice. Thank you. Yeah. Yours too. We'll need to do that. Maybe that's, you know, we've talked about doing the cask two of three of like a raw watch for like each of us. Something you haven't seen and something I haven't seen. And we just kind of come in here and just get into it. So that'd be pretty good too. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we have one more film left in the Western four ways cask. So if we've gone from John forward 
to the samurai film to midnight cowboy what does it look like today and if there's one person's name i can equate to he's reinventing the western in a variety of different ways from sicario to uh yellowstone to yeah. uh oh gosh what was what was the other one 1841 uh, oh, 1881. Yeah, 1881, that's, that's, I mean. that's the that's the prequel. His name's Taylor Sheridan. Yeah, no one probably knows that guy's name, but he is doing a postmodern revision, revisionist. Oh, Wind River. Oh yeah, revisionist western, better than I think anyone would give him credit for. Mm-hmm. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're watching any of these films or Yellowstone, dude, you're watching a western, and this guy's just doing it in a modern way. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to cover one of the best versions of that that he, I think, wrote and directed. Hell or High Water. Jeff Bridges, Chris Pine, Mr. Ben Foster. This is going to be a fun film to cover. The modern-day Claude Rains, Ben Foster. Right? Oh, good. Oh, that's well said. What's funny about this is this this film has just missed two other casks. Mm. Like it's just been the fourth of the three selections or fifth of the fourth. Was it possible in the heist cast? Heist cask and... Um, there's one other one that was, oh, I can't remember what it was. I'll look back. Well, it's finally getting its due. Yeah, here it is. This will be a lot of fun to, to talk about this one. And then Taylor Sher, I'm going to try and do a little research on maybe why he likes this particular genre so much. Yeah. Because I love Sicario. That's like a top shelf film for me. And that's just, you watch it and you're like, eh, I'm kind of watching a Western here, people. Mm-hmm. So this will be a, a lot of fun to talk about. So wrap up the cask with style. And then we got some big stuff on the horizon, right? Huge coming. Big, 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 huge. <laughs> big stuff. Yep. And a particular, like, can I lay the seedlings here? Yeah. A tease, as you would say in the business. Mm. We've never done an actor's cask on this podcast before. We've done a few directors, uh, but we've talked about doing a actor-centric cask. We got one coming. It's going to just, it's going to rock. <laughs> Let's do this. I'll put this out for the social this week. If anybody... We'll venture forth the guests on Facebook or any of the social media or email, and you get it right. We will buy you a rye mug and a rye shirt on the house and send it your way. Okay. Because I am so certain that no one is going to get this. Yeah, no way. Sounds good to me. All right. Sounds good to me, too. All right. Cheers to you. Cheers to you. I got to get going. I'm going to go listen to some more Harry Nielsen. I really like this song. Uh, and I also like uh, Without You. I also like jump into the fire too. So let's just go crank on the tunes. We'll have some more bourbon and let's see if we can get rid of this melancholy feel that this film gave us. <laughs> I love that. I'm not going to add anything to it. I like that. I like that source of music. Is there any horns in that or is it all harmonica? It's all harmonica. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> all right. We'll see you all next week. Everybody. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, tune in or have you listen to podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there it really helps out the show and for rye smile films merchandise go to tpublic.com midnight cowboy is property of united artists jerome hellman productions and missed entertainment and no copyright infringement is intended until next time Cheers. Okay, folks, nothing to worry about. Just a little illness. We'll be in Miami in just a few minutes.